The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than these sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told, them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many." for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Our sermon today is not a very long one. It's based on John chapter 16, it's verses 19 through 22, and it's entitled, Your Sorrow Will Be Turned Into Joy. John 16, verse 19 says, Now Jesus knew they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. A few weeks before I typed our sermon for today, a friend, Chris, who is a Navy SEAL and who attends online with the Superior Word, sent an email concerning his thoughts on our state before God. I got his permission to use what he wrote me for the introduction to our sermon today. Other than amending it in some areas for clarity or for style for a sermon and for some punctuation, it is just as he sent it to me. Here's what he said. God not only created the possibility for Adam to sin by putting the tree in the garden, but he also made Satan, knowing what he was and all he would do to mankind. It begs the question, is a test given where the outcome is known or predestined before you give it really a test? I would say yes for the student, but not for the teacher. He not only created the test, but he tanked it on purpose. If you truly think about it, It is common for anyone to ask the question, why create man? We tend to be self-centered after all. But then why even Satan? God knew he was going to be a murderer and the father of lies before he even created him. Why would a teacher give any test if he already knew the result and in reality added conditions that would knowingly cause them to fail? And anyone having to take it would inevitably be the worse for it unless there is a purpose outside of how we responded to the test. To set a condition that provides improvement of the student, whereby he is, in fact, ultimately better off than in the first state. Understanding some of the nature of God, he is infallible. He knows everything before it happens and works all things to good for those that seek him. We know that the fall had to be by design. We know Adam was made to praise worship, and glorify God. But was the intent ever to do that in an originally sinless state? I would have to say no, based on the reasoning above. It could not have been if God created Satan and us, knowing we would fail. Our worship and praise, or the glory God receives, has to be greater somehow in lieu of our fallen state and after glorification. We are then a work in progress to be perfected for his intended purpose in his perfect timing. The simple fact that we can even be saved glorifies God through Jesus' selfless, subservient act. God's intended state for us would have had to have been far better off than the first to make it worthwhile to create Satan, and then knowing our choices in advance. God does not make mistakes, and he knows the end from the beginning. Those that are his are made perfect in Christ. We will be made perfect, at least in God's ultimate purpose for us, after he comes again. This leads me to the thought, what's better, to walk with God like Adam or Enoch, or to have Christ in us, which was the intent for man all along? I would argue we can have a closer relationship now than we ever could have had simply walking with him. Jesus' prayer was for us to be one. Christ is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. We are all one in the Spirit according to His Word, and we are in Christ as Christ is in us. Would that have even been possible if our spirit hadn't died? We could walk with Him, but would we be in Him and He in us? What's the difference? 
I think it is because now we can start to know the mind of God as he reveals himself through his spirit in us, not to us. Our spirit is now renewed and we are made a new creature, not the old brought back again, new and wholly different in Christ. Was that the intent all along? To develop a condition of perfect union between God and man, subservient to him, but with a heart for true love, praise, and worship, in the realization we were once, too, separated from God, but now God is in us. Not that we are God, but we are in God, and God is in us because of Christ and through Christ, who would not have died if we never sinned. The perfect communion is by design, not an afterthought. If this is, in fact, the case, we can then know him better in some ways than any man or angel could ever do, even before the fall. Think about it. Nobody has seen the Father but the Son, according to Jesus' own words. That included Adam, who was sinless, right? Because Christ is in us, we are told we will be able to walk boldly in his presence, because what God sees is his Son in us. What a gift! I can't begin to fathom what that means, but I do know this. It was by design right from the start. The perfect will of God is manifest in us eternally. We move in relation to him from sinner to saint to the glory of God. Amen. That is Chris's thoughts to me. Our text verse today comes from Isaiah 46. It's verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. In part of my response to Chris, I mentioned contrast, saying we can't really know good unless we experience bad. We can't appreciate food until we get hungry. We don't have an idea what feeling normal is like until we get sick. Contrast is what allows this. For Adam and Eve, there was nothing to contrast their state to. When man was in Eden, he had everything he needed. But there was, as there is in each of us, a desire for more. In giving the law to Adam, it set the desire for more to take hold and to destroy him. Satan knew this, and he used it to bring about the fall of man. Adam didn't look at the forbidden fruit in its proper context, which is from his position as the created before his creator. First, as the creator, God had a right to set the boundaries. Secondly, having been created, Adam is a finite being and therefore could not, by default, grasp the infinite. Third, in looking at the created fruit which the Lord had forbidden him to eat, He failed to take into consideration that God is the source of the fruit. If the fruit could satisfy in some measure, as the account says it did, then how much more could the Creator Himself satisfy? Look at anything in this world which brings us some measure of pleasure. All things find their source in God, and yet those things that we find pleasure in can cause us harm or even kill us. As the proverb says, Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. How did Solomon know this? Well, he could have been told it by his mother and taken her word at face value. Or he might have figured it out by watching someone else eat too much honey and seeing the results. Or he may have indulged in it himself. No matter which, 
that was the experiential knowledge of someone that made it known. And that was based on the contrast of before and after. In God, there is a process which is bringing us as a species from one state to another. We need to go through this process in order to appreciate what we have obtained. But we also need to go through this process in order to come to a state where it is even possible to appreciate it. It is a fact that there is a devil and that he really works out evil in this world. It is also a fact that we suffer through all kinds of troubles, trials, pains, ills, woes, and disappointments. People use these things as an argument that God is incompetent, unable to accomplish anything good, and so on. It goes on and on, and it fails to see the big picture. But with the written word, his superior word, we can know and trust by faith that God has a plan. It is being worked out, and its end goal is glorious. We will have the knowledge of this messed up world, and we will also have the knowledge of what God did for us to redeem us out of it. These are truths which are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just one thought for you today. It's John 16, verses 19 through 22. In Revelation 22, verse 17, it says these words, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. They are marvelous words which stir our soul. We thirst and there is a fount from which we may drink. But unless we first thirsted in death, we would not know what it means to drink of and to possess the water of life. Verse 19, now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Jesus is here referring to a puzzling statement that he earlier spoke to those with him. In John 14, he said, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In John 16, he repeats a portion of that thought, knowing that the disciples didn't understand his words, but they had a desire to know what he was talking about. They wanted to ask him what he meant, and he preempted them. But he doesn't precisely answer their question. In his words, a little while and you will see me, he is referring to his coming death and subsequent burial. You see me now, and if you think that will continue, you would be incorrect. You won't see me. We can look back on his words and understand what he meant, but the words were enigmatic enough that anyone hearing them for the first time would wonder what he was talking about. It simply isn't a normal way of speaking unless a special thought is being conveyed. In his continued words, the enigma only increased. And again, a little while, and you will see me. This statement actually only complicated something that he had already said to them. Earlier in John 14, he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, 
and the way you know. It was obvious to them that the two statements were not speaking of the same event. He was going to prepare a place, but there was also a time when they wouldn't see him, and then they would see him again. This is what caused them curiosity, and it is that which he explains. But even in his explanation, he does not give specifics. Verse 20, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. The words that he will not be seen by them is explained with their being brought to a point of intense sorrow. It is not an explanation in the sense of filling in details of what is unknown concerning the previous verse. Rather, it is an explanation which provides details of what they will experience in the time ahead. It is comparable to what one might say when planning a surprise for somebody else. Big things are coming for you in the days ahead. What does that mean? Trust me, when they come, you will be delighted beyond measure. Verse 20 continues, but the world will rejoice. This is generally taken to mean that those who came against Christ would rejoice at being done with him. But this may not be the point of his words at all. It is true that the leaders of Israel probably felt smugly satisfied that the thorn that was in their side was eliminated. But the number of those who would feel this would be limited. The word is cosmos, and it signifies the world as in its arrangement. It is an ordered system. In John 14:30, Jesus spoke of the ruler of this world. That is an obvious reference to Satan and the power of darkness, which he works out, such as through Judas. In the next chapter, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It seems that Jesus is speaking of the world, ordered under its ruler, who is Satan. This then is inclusive of those leaders who came against him. But it is more involved than that. It is the order in which they walk and exist. It is the ordered state of enmity which exists against God through the rule of Satan. As Jesus had said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. This then is the world which will rejoice when he is gone. The devil and all of the wickedness which permeates the world under him will rejoice that God's Messiah is defeated and that they have prevailed, gaining complete and permanent control over the sphere in which man exists. But Christ, the light of the world, tells them now that the darkness of their sorrow will not be permanent. Verse 20 continues, And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus uses three expressions of woe to describe their future state, translated as weep, lament, and now sorrow. The first two speak of audible expressions of lamentation and mourning. This third speaks of a more general type of pain and grief which affects the body and the soul. It is the pall of great sorrow. He tells them that these things will be replaced with the same joy that the world had expressed in their delight at his going away. They will exist in a state which is defined by joy. It is a state which Paul 
one of the Pharisees who was included in the world of rejoicing at the removal of Christ would someday express in a new and a profound way. The contrast is given so that for the ages of ages, they could look back on what they once had and see the difference between the two. In knowing the sorrowful lamentation, their joy could be complete in having put the sorrows behind once and forever. Paul's smug and bitter fighting against the Lord through the persecution of his people would be replaced with the horror of what his actions meant. So much so that in Acts chapter 9, at hearing the Lord's words that his actions against the church were a direct attack against him, it says that he was trembling and astonished. For the next three days, blinded because of the vision, it says he neither ate nor drank. His was a morning of the soul like the other apostles experienced, but on a completely different level. They felt the tragedy of loss. He felt the tragedy of having been responsible for that loss. Before, he was too blinded to see the truth, and yet later, in his blindness, he sat there mourning over the truth he had missed, and thus the grief he had caused. What would be the end of it? As he sat there blind and grief-stricken, he also must have wondered what his fate would be. He had crucified the Lord, rejected the call to repent of that, and had destroyed his people. He must have been sure that a fate worse than Korah himself lay ahead of him. Eventually, though, the good news of glad tidings was extended even to him, as is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Yes, the scales fell from his eyes, Clarity of sight, never before experienced, filled his mind, and joy, joy inexpressible, filled his life from that day on. But without the contrast, there could not be the heartfelt expression of joy, nor could the depth of his love for the Creator be so great as it was. The plan of God was set from before the foundation of the world. Man would be created, he would fall, he would fail the test, and then the next test, and then the one after that. With each failure, man was then being conducted on a road to a fuller understanding of glory, of intimacy with God, and in what it means to understand the word love in its fullest, deepest, and most profound sense. Brother Usama spoke about love the churches speak about in the world today, and we see it in all kinds of churches around the world today where they focus on love, and they say that we have to love our Brother homosexuals, we have to love this and we have to love that. That is not at all what is being spoken of when it speaks of love in the Bible. The highest form of love that we can have is love for God. And in that love is a respect for his commands. And when he calls something sin, that we are to call it sin. That is loving. When we love somebody into hell, we are not loving them at all. We're doing them a disservice. And people need to understand that. What Jesus Christ came and expressed to us was a love in the fullest sense possible, and that is what we need to proclaim in this church. Was God out of control? Is God out of control? Is there a purpose for the pains of life? Indeed, no, God was not out of control. No, God is not out of control. And yes, there is a purpose for the pains of life. 
Verse 21, a woman when she is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come. This was ordained by the Lord in Genesis chapter 3. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It is right and fitting that the Lord pronounced this upon the woman, and it becomes obvious why he would make the connection to that particular event now, just prior to his crucifixion. The woman had been deceived and then had allowed that deception to coax her husband into sin. Death was the result of this, and so in giving birth, there would be the reminder of that state. She would be in pain as she delivered a physically living child who had inherited man's spiritually dead state. In this, she would be in sorrow because her hour had come. But this sentence upon the woman was no different than that of the curse which was levied upon the man. The Lord did not exempt himself from any word of the curse upon Adam, and he did not exempt himself from this pronouncement upon the woman as well. Christ Jesus had to go through his own sort of labor pains and sorrow in order to bring forth children to God. But in assuming this earthly life, carrying the weight of the law upon himself and going through the sorrowful labor pains of his passion, he then brought many sons to glory. This is what he looked forward to as he endured the heavy burden that he carried. Jesus now likens this same type of labor pain to his disciples around him as well. They would have their own labor pains as they watched God's plan unfold before their eyes. They would have sorrow that they had never experienced before, but it would all be worth it in the end. Verse 21 continues, But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. When we witness to Jews, a real stumbling block for them is the term Christian. There is such a wall of enmity built up by Jews concerning the term that it is almost impossible to break down or even to climb over. Since the early church when the term was first used, and certainly as a derogatory term at times and throughout the centuries as well, it has been a word of disdain to them. Christians have hunted them down. Christians have destroyed them and stolen their possessions. Christians have been the great enemy of their existence. How does one find common ground when such a battlefield has always seemed to exist? And so, when dealing with a relationship with Christ, many believing Jews state that they are completed Jews. It is a good analogy, and it bears a similar mark of truth to what the words of this verse are saying. The woman rejoices and no longer remembers the anguish because a human being has been brought forth. Jesus Christ walked in a world full of human beings, but as he walked among them, he saw something that they couldn't see. It is something that we still can't perceive today. Like a movie about zombies, Christ walked among the living dead. Something was missing from man that kept him from being a completed man. And this is true even with the first man, Adam. The record says this, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Adam was a living soul, and one that could potentially live forever. That is implied in the words of the Lord to Adam. But as Chris noted in our introduction today, Adam was, like we are, a work in progress, to be perfected for his intended purposes and in his perfect timing. It cannot be said that Adam was already perfected in this way. 
He was perfect in his state of being, but not perfected in the ideal way that God intended. This is true because he lacked the knowledge of good and evil. This was not a defect, but it was a lack. The problem was, in order to fill that lack, fault would then result. God set it up this way. God placed the possibility of it before the man by forbidding that he eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Man did. Fault or sin entered the world and the perfect life died, first spiritually, and then 930 years later, he died physically. This, however, was the plan of God in order to bring about the perfected man. Man, meaning all men, had to go through this ordeal. It is an ordeal which continued on for thousands of years, waiting for the perfect moment in God's preordained plan in order to bring about that which is superior, even to that which Adam experienced. And that is why there was another tree in the garden, a tree of life. Man had access to that, and he was never forbidden from eating it. But once he sinned, access to that tree was removed. He was separated from God, expelled from the garden, and was destined to die. Now, through the coming of Christ, in the death which atones for man's sin, and in the covering his shed blood provides, we are granted access to God's paradise, and thus to that tree of life once again. In Christ, we become what even Adam wasn't. He was created a perfect man, but he was not a completed man. He was not a perfected man. We now have something greater than he ever had. He had intimate face-to-face -face fellowship with God, but we have God residing in us, filling us, and a unity with God that even Adam lacked. And we have the knowledge of the extent that God was willing to go to in order to bring us to that state. Adam could not have conceived of the love of God which existed. He may have been able to deduce what the Bible proclaims, that God is love, but he could not have grasped in a million years or in all of eternity, what that actually meant. Only in the fall of man and in God's redemptive plans for man can the depth of that love be truly seen and experienced. The disciples who sat listening to Jesus were told about it, but even they couldn't imagine it. It was beyond their ability to comprehend. Verse 22, therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. The sorrow Jesus speaks of here is one of perplexity leading to grief. When he says, you now have sorrow, it was a sorrow of anticipating whatever he was referring to. That state of sorrow would turn to the weeping and lamentation he spoke of in verse 20. And that sorrow would continue on until they once again beheld the day spring from on high who would come to visit them. After that day, their hearts would rejoice. Verse 22 finishes with these words. And your joy no one will take from you. The Lord said that in that day they would possess a joy that could never be taken from them. Now this has to be taken in the context for which it is intended. There is a state of joy and there is the challenge of daily life. The apostles faced trials. They got angry even with one another. They were concerned in many ways and they were not without fault. Both in ordinary life and in their doctrine. It is fashionable for some Christians to assume that because they have Christ, they can possess a joy which excludes any of those other negatives, such as trials, pains, frustrations, or even anger. 
This is not what Christ Jesus was saying, nor is it a message later found in the epistles. Rather, the joy that Christ is speaking of is a state of being that says to us, despite these things, you have a hope which transcends them and which will get you both through and beyond them. That hope is referred to, for example, by Paul in the book of Colossians chapter 1. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul spoke of sufferings and afflictions in which he rejoiced because of the hope which transcends the temporary light afflictions. It is, as he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is this hope of glory which establishes the state of joy. Pains will come, deaths will continue, and the bodies will be covered over with the soil of the earth. But because Christ came forth from death, so will those who possess the hope of Christ and the promises he has made. And those promises include becoming the completed man that God intended before he ever breathed the breath of life into the first man, the earthly man, Adam. Paul tells us of this wonderfully marvelous truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I put my Bible down and I was reaching for it and couldn't figure out where I'd put it down. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish ones, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man, speaking of Adam, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We have gathered here today in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that moment in history which makes possible the very things that we have talked about all too briefly today. But we need to remember what the resurrection of Jesus means. It means that he first died. Without his death, there would have been no resurrection. The world we live in, as we have noted, is one of pain, sorrow, trial, and death. But none of those things are without purpose. And God has not lost control. Rather, he is in complete control. The measure of his love for us is not found in the level of comfort that we experience, nor in the amount of money we make or possess. The love of God is found in the plan which he initiated and which he has lovingly unfolded before our eyes in the stream of human existence. And it is highlighted by one defining act, the giving of his son on the torturous tree of Calvary. It is that alone which God has put on display and in which he has declared, through this I will accept you unto myself. God has done the work, he has made the offer, and he will instill in you the same hope of glory that the saints of the ages possess if you will simply reach out to him and by faith be reconciled to him through Christ's shed blood. My appeal to you today is to do so, to come to the cross, to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, and to receive the gift of eternal life which God has placed before you. May it be so, and may it be today. Amen. I'd like to say that one more time in a different way so that you understand. There are all kinds of different ideas about election in the Bible. Election is how does God choose people for salvation. Some people say that God are elect apart from man's free will. You know what? The Bible never teaches that. It never teaches that. All the way from the very first page of the Bible, actually the third chapter, but all the way from there to the last page of the Bible, free will is on prominent display. We must make a decision for God. God does not regenerate us in order to believe in him. That's a false doctrine. God expects us to use our minds and to make a choice. And if we don't make that choice, we will not be a part of what God has done. All right? Every person here has to make the choice. Jesus Christ came. He died on a cross. He was buried. And he was raised again. That is the gospel message that is preached in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the beginning of the chapter that I just read you. And I'm going to take you to Romans and I'm going to tell you how you can appropriate that. This is what you need to know in order to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I've given you the gospel, and he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart 
that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is an act of the volitional will. Believe. John 3.16 says as much as well. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This is the gospel. This is what God offers you. I post it every year. I go out and every morning I go out and I take a sunrise photo and post it on Facebook. And once a year I go out and I have a cross that I have and I take it and I go out into the bay and I get my post hole diggers and I dig in the mud of the bay, which is really not easy when it's this deep in water. And you got to get a hole without it all going back in there. And I put that cross out there and I try to tamp the clay mud back down in there and I get a picture with the sun coming up behind it. And I do that every year. And this year... I asked the simple question, what is the value of mankind to God? That's it right there. He stepped out of the eternal realm, united with human flesh, lived a life that you and I cannot live. It is impossible for us to live the life that is demanded of the law. Leviticus 18, the man who does these things shall live by them. And the rest of the Old Testament documents that no person stayed alive. Every one of them died. One of the oldest guys in the Old Testament was one of the priests. He lived to 130 years old, but guess what? He died. I'm talking about after the giving of the law. Every person died because they could not do the things of the law. And so God said, I'm going to do it for you so that you can be restored to me. That's what the coming of Christ Jesus means. Please Understand that, as Usama said today, everything was prophesied in advance. Everything. There was no mistake that we would make a mistake and pick the wrong person or believe falsely. It was all prophesied in advance so that we would know with 100% certainty. Our closing verse comes from John 1. It's verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Next week, we'll be back in the book of Numbers, Numbers 19, 11 through 22. Something for the cleansing of Israel, the nation. It's entitled, The Water of Purification. That'll be our 37th number sermon. Really wonderful pictures of Christ in there. When you talk about reading the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers, you say, how does that point to Christ? Every single sentence in this book points to Christ. If you stayed through those Leviticus sermons, you know that every offering, every word of every clean and unclean animal under the sacrificial system, everything points to Jesus Christ because God is trying to wake us up to the fact that he is going to do what he is going to do. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Though paradise was lost, he offers access to it once again through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so call on him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got a short poem and we'll be done. It's entitled, The Celebration of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel which was preached to you. It is also one you received and on which you stand. It is the gospel of your salvation, providing life that's new and which will carry you to the promised holy land. What is delivered to you is what was before received, that Christ died for our sins according to God's word. He was buried and he rose, and so we have believed, and many witnesses testify to this message you have heard. Now, if Christ has preached that he has risen from the dead, how can some among you say the resurrection isn't true? If there's no resurrection after Christ was crucified and bled, then our faith as well as yours is certainly askew. And if so, we are found false witnesses of God because we have wrongly testified of this mighty deed. 
and our faith is futile. No heavenly streets, we will try. And we are still dead in our sins, fallen Adam's seed. Even more, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord are gone. And we are the most pitiable creatures the world could ever look upon. But Christ indeed is risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as death came through one man, Adam, our federal head, so Christ will make alive all. Our souls he will keep. But there is an order to the resurrection call. Christ was first the pattern for the rest when he comes. When he does, he will make a shout out to us all. And we will rise as if to the sound of heavenly battle drums. Then comes the time when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when all rule, authority, and power have come to an end. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, never more to bother. Then the Son will to the Father eternal rule extend. But you ask, what will we be like after our time of sleep, after we have been buried in corruption's pit so deep? Our body is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness but raised in power, the resurrection story. The first man, Adam, became a living being, it is true. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, life to me and you. And as was the man of dust created so long ago, so are those likened unto him also made of dust. And as the man, the Lord from heaven, you know that we shall bear his image, just as we've discussed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit that which is incorrupt. But we shall all be changed. And so heavenly streets we will trod. In the twinkling of an eye, the change will be abrupt. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed, completion of the gospel story. Where, O death, oh, where is your sting? When Christ our Savior, us to himself, does he bring. Where, O oh, Hades, oh, where is your victory? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in all you've heard and saw and cling confidently to God's eternal word. Know for certain that your labor is not in vain. Be of good cheer. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, it is such a wonderful joy to know what Christ did for us. To think on what he did and what it means for fallen man, the wickedness in the world, the wickedness of Charlie Garrett, all of those years of life wasted, waiting for the moment when you would come and save us, save our souls, Restore us to you despite ourselves, despite the wickedness that we've done, and we continue to do. We're filled with your spirit in a jar of clay, and we use it for everything but holiness. Forgive us of this, Lord. Pass over our sins and lead us to the rock which is higher than we are. Thank you. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means to us. And we praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in his name. Amen.